All right. Well, we've got a couple of announcements, if I can remember them. Number one, there's the men's prayer breakfast Saturday morning at 730, and that's followed by the deacons meeting. And then after that, we have the um, the next announcement is that on Christmas Eve morning, which is Sunday morning, that's when we will be having our Christmas Eve service is that Sunday morning. So we will be, uh, just to let you know, that's what's going on instead of having it Sunday night. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So before we get started, we always have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. And that just simply means that uh, as we confess our sins, that means to admit or acknowledge our sins in silent prayer to God, and instantly He forgives us of those sins, and then in His grace, He goes on to cleanse us of all other sins, the ones we forgot, the ones we ignored, the ones we didn't think about or didn't think were sins. Everything is wiped clean, and that's just grace. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a great privilege to come together to study your word, to fellowship around your word, to think about what you have revealed to us. Thank you that you have given us so much information and that if we had a hundred lifetimes, we could not probe all that is said here, the significance and implication of everything. So, Father, we thank you for these things, and we pray for our missionaries right now. Pray for Jim and Phyllis Myers as they're headed down to Antarctica via cruise, and thankful that Jim is doing better and that he is um, at least mobile and um, uh, not fully pain-free, but he is um, not doing badly. And, so we're thankful for that improvement. So, Father, we pray for us tonight as we study your word that you'll help us to understand what your word teaches and think through the concepts. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, it's Thursday night, so we're studying Philippians, but we're in sort of a th- three-lesson topical study coming out of our passage where it mentions the day of Christ. This is the second time in Philippians Paul uses the day of Christ, and so back in the first chapter, uh, we did a study on the distinctions between the day of Christ and the day of the Lord. And tonight and the last couple of nights, I've been talking about what happens at the judgment seat of Christ. So we're looking at this these topics, the topic of rewards, judgment seat of Christ, and crowns. Now, you may not realize it, uh, depending on how many people you have talked with about this over the years, but there are some Christians I've run into who said, I just can't believe God's going to give rewards to some and not to others. That's just so unfair. Everybody ought to get the same thing. 
What does that sound like? That sounds like equity, not equal opportunity to do well, but equity. Everybody gets the same thing at the end. So you have you have that. Others um, have some other little foibles, problems here and there. And so we're trying to go just go through and point out what the Scripture teaches. So in the context of of um, what we're looking at here in Philippians chapter uh, two is the exhortation to stand fast. And we talked through that, what that meant, and how frequently that is stated in the Scripture. And of course, that's one element necessary to be a faithful believer and to do well at the judgment seat of Christ. So we have passages like Philippians 4, uh, 4.1, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord. Now, this phrase, in the Lord, I think, is, is the same language that you have with walking in the Spirit. And I don't think this is talking about uh, in the, in. Christ, like the phrase in Christ. This is talking about means or instrument, the way uh, that he who enables us. And the Lord, of course, refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is through the Holy Spirit that the Lord Jesus Christ sent to indwell us that we are enabled to live the spiritual life. 1 Thessalonians 3.8, same command, for now we live if you stand fast. So the idea of living isn't physical life or physical death. It is experiencing the fullness and the richness of the Christian way of life. In our passage, Philippians two fourteen through 16, we have one sentence. So you can't really break this up. And that's not a that's not a comfortable thing for most of us because the main line, the main sentence is a command to do all things without grumbling and disputing. And that word all things bothers most people because we all enjoy grumbling and complaining about certain things, but we're to do all things without grumbling and complaining, without uh, complaining and disputing or arguing for the result so we want to be obedient because it will produce a result. It's part of our spiritual growth to become blameless and harmless. That is in terms of our experiential righteousness and spiritual growth. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So you see the contrast between blameless and harmless versus crooked and perverse, which is the pretty much a a nice quick summary of the culture in which we live, uh, among whom you shine as lights in the world. But the the verse breaks there, and we miss the, the whole sentence. We shine as lights in the world by holding fast the word of life. So that's the command, stand fast, stand strong. How do we do that? By holding fast the word of life. So there's this combination of... Uh, of uh, walking by the Spirit and holding fast to the word of life. With the result that, and Paul says, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. Now in First John talks about that we can be embarrassed, they wouldn't have shame, that you, he, uh, John says that you may not have shame 
at the judgment seat of Christ. That doesn't mean you can lose your salvation, but we can be embarrassed because of a realization of our lost opportunities. And, uh, and it's not a focus on sin. It's, a, it's an absence of rewards that comes up, as we'll see, um, as we'll see in our study today. So that's the idea. Holding fast, he wants to rejoice in the day of Christ. So we looked at, started looking at what the Bible teaches about the day of Christ. We got through about three points last week because we were looking at a lot of Scripture uh, which support each one of these points. So I'm just going to review the main points here. In terms of introductory comments, we started looking at some of the Old Testament passages because they provide a uh, background for understanding rewards. For example, Genesis 15.1, and I'd never looked at it in this light before, where God tells Abram, I am your shield and your great reward. Now, the principle that we learn from throughout Scripture is that salvation is a free gift, but a reward is based on performance. It's just like if you uh, have a an athlete who goes professional, he's given a contract, basic contract, no matter what happens, you're going to get paid this much money. But then there are incentive clauses that you'll get bonuses for performance at different levels. And so that's the idea that we have here. We have the basic contract that we're all going to have eternal life. We're all going to have a resurrection body. We're all going to have, uh, relative to our experience, we're all going to have fullness of joy. And there's not going to be absence. Some people compare this to some people, to capacity. We develop capacity for joy in this life. And it's like some of us are going to have a demitas cup, and it will be full, so we will be very happy. Others are going to have one of those big Texas size bowls, and that's going to be full, and so we're going to be very, very happy. The person who has the demitas isn't going to be aware of any kind of loss or sorrow or anything like that, and the person that has more isn't going to be aware of the uh, lesser um, experience of someone else. But we will all be full. Now, in amillennialism, I pointed this out last time, uh, we live in a present form of the kingdom that is a spiritualized kingdom. There's no future kingdom. And so they um, they come along, and by spiritualizing the promises to Abraham... They, spirit, they lose the literal significance of them, and then they begin to uh, just um, apply those in an allegorical way uh, about heaven. So there's a failure to understand that in the kingdom, literal earthly kingdom, we will, as the bride of Christ, we will be ruling and reigning with Christ, and our responsibilities are going to be relative to how well we did in training. You can compare that to the military. And in the military, after you get out of basic training, if you did well, you have opportunities to go to a variety of different schools and different uh, appointments and be in different units. If you didn't do so well, then you have limited options. So by doing well, we will have uh, greater capacity and greater privileges uh, in heaven. 
Abraham, who is rewarded by God with the Abrahamic covenant, we're told by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. Inheritance is a major word in understanding rewards. Inheritance has to do with possession. And as we've studied many times and we'll review tonight, there are two categories of inheritance. The inheritance or possessions that we all have and the inheritance or possessions that are relative to our our performance. So that's another important word. I touched on that some last time when we talked about the prodigal son. And we looked at the word meros, which refers to, it's used in a technical sense. It's translated like you have a part or a share in something, but in a technical sense, it's part of a will designating a property, share of ownership. That happens with the prodigal son. He comes to his father and he says, I want my, my share now. He's saying he wants his inheritance. And he went and squandered it. He comes back. He's still daddy's son. He's welcomed with open arms. He is forgiven of all of his failings. But the inheritance is still spent. So that relates to what can happen in the life of a rebellious believer. So just by way of quick review here, the day of Christ is different from the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord describes a time of judgment. In most cases, it's a reference to the future tribulation, the seven years of Daniel's 70th week in Daniel 7, 24 to, I mean, Daniel 9, 24 to 27. And it, that comes after the rapture. I had kind of a funny email from a political group today, and it was making a point that, that with everything that we're seeing now, we have to be prepared for what's coming because of what is taught in the book of Revelations, S on the end of the name of the book. I so wanted to reply to the email and said, if you can't get the name of the last book of the Bible correct, how can I trust your interpretation of those events? Because as I read through it, it had us going through the tribulation and how we could make sure that our family would come out the other end safe and secure. So the day of Christ comes immediately after Christ comes for his own at the rapture prior to the tribulation. We don't know how far ahead of the tribulation it will be. There's clearly going to be some sort of transitional period. The, the, the tribulation begins with the signing of the covenant between the Antichrist and Israel. It doesn't begin with the rapture. So when that that treaty is signed, that's the countdown. That's when the stopwatch starts. So that and then, but what we're focused on is what will happen with us in heaven. That's the judgment seat, uh, the judgment seat of Christ. And so that's when there are rewards given, and that's what's described in a couple of passages we'll look at uh, tonight. So in point two, we saw that rewards are mentioned a number of times in the Old Testament, and the words indicate that they are a payment or a recompense or the consequence of certain decisions or actions. Now that's important to understand because salvation is free. It's not a payment. It's not a recompense. It is a free gift. So rewards are earned 
Salvation is free. We looked, like I said, Genesis 15.1 earlier. Um, New Testament words, misthos, has the same idea. That's the word that's usually translated rewards. We have wages. It's a recompense. It's something that is earned. Just like an Olympic athlete works hard for years, for decades, and then wins a, a gold. When they win the gold, it's not a free gift. They have worked for it, but that's the prize. We'll come back to that analogy in a minute. Another word used in the New Testament is antipodosis, which has the same idea of a repayment or a reward, and then the word miros that I mentioned earlier, which refers to a portion or share of an inheritance. So the conclusion from all of this is that salvation is a free gift, but rewards are additional blessings for eternity. Now that's where we stopped last time. We went through a lot of different passages illustrating each of those points. Now tonight we want to look at this terminology. We want to go to the two key passages in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses, I think it's about verses 8 or 9 down to about verse 15. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, we read, For we must all appear. Now, the we tells you that he's talking about believers. He's writing to the Corinthians who are, despite all of their uh, famous sins and failures, their arrogance, their divisiveness, all of the many sins. So he's talking to believers. And he says, we must all, it's necessary, this is what will take place, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now the judgment seat of Christ, the word, the Greek word there is bema, and bema just refers to a, uh, a raised platform, like a dais, but it's bema, it comes from the Greek, actually goes back to the Hebrew, and if you go to a synagogue, the rabbi is up on a bema. That's what how, how they describe the raised platform at the front of the synagogue. And what takes place is each one may be recompensed or rewarded um, for his deeds in the body. So this isn't salvation because you have to be saved to even be here. So this is rewards according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So the Bema seat is a raised or elevated seat or platform where the magistrate or the tribunal, a tribunal is a judge, also known as a tribune, uh, where the tribune would sit. In judicial settings, this is the seat of the judge or the tribune. Now here's a picture of the Bema with the Acrocorinth, that's the high place in Corinth in the background where they had a, uh, a temple up there to, I believe it was to Athena. And so here's the, um, the Bema seat. And then this was in ancient history uh, when I was there. I taught on this passage at the Bema seat. And as you, we go through that, we need to look at the nature of the judgment seat of Christ. Who is at the judgment seat of Christ? Well, that's going to be believers. Believers only. 
Every believer in the church age will be there. Not Old Testament saints, but church age believers. Will there be distinctions among believers following the judgment seat of Christ? Well, we'll see that that's true in the passage. That there are some who have rewards, probably many, and there are some who have no rewards, but they still enter, they're still saved. And then third, how can the New Testament doctrine of rewards be reconciled with grace? Because it's God's grace that provides, it's a motivation for us. Everywhere you look in the judgment seat of Christ, you look at the fact that Jesus is coming. All the prophetic passages about the rapture are all designed to encourage us to hang in there, that Jesus is coming back. We don't know when it when it's going to be. It could be tomorrow. Uh, it could be next year. It could be next decade. It could be next century. We don't know. But we know one thing, that within our three score and ten, and if by strength another decade, then we're going to be face-to-face with the Lord. So whether it's face-to-face with the Lord at uh, at the rapture, and who knows, it could be uh, any one of us. Uh, we, we look around and we can all think of numerous people we knew that we grew up with that were taken to be with the Lord in their 20s or their 30s or their 40s. So whether we're talking about the rapture or we're just talking about dying suddenly, uh, we're going to have that face-to-face with the Lord encounter. So the definition of the judgment seat of Christ is it's the evaluation. It's our report card. If you remember last time, I had discovered my first grade report card from when I was in Toronto. And uh, we had some fun with that. But the judgment seat of Christ is the evaluation of the works of church-age believers during the Christian life on the earth. And some people get all concerned. It's not about sin, when you look when we look at the passage in 1 Corinthians 3 it's not about exposing what was wrong it's about exposing what was right and that's the basis for the, for the rewards so it's not an evaluation should we go to heaven or not it is our roles and responsibilities in heaven and God's going to be very gracious if you read through how God praises old testament saints for their faith in Hebrews 11 you come towards the end, and he praises Barak and Gideon and Jephthah and Samson. And we've all gone through uh, judges, some of you a couple of times with me. Those guys were not on the pinnacle of spirituality. They were failures more than they were successes. In fact, if you just had the book of Judges, we would think that Samson never did anything worthy But God praises him. So God's going to treat us in tremendous grace. The works that are evaluated are are that we are rewarded for refer to anything that's done by means of the Holy Spirit. Our faithfulness to God, learning, internalizing, memorizing, applying God's word, witnessing, being kind to one another, loving one another, serving the Lord, serving one another, all of these other commands that if we do them walking by the Spirit, then they have eternal value. If we just do it, because we can imitate a lot of these things in the flesh. And that's not going to count for anything. That's going to be wood, hay, and straw. Now, there are going to be two types of people at the Bema. Those who are rewarded and those who are not. And 
I'm emphasizing this because there are some people who do think that everybody gets the same thing, and that doesn't appear to be what happens here. According to the grace of God which was given to me, Paul is writing, as a wise master builder, so he's using this metaphor of construction, building something. We're building something with our life. And he says, I've laid the foundation. Another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. So pay attention to how you're building. In other words, how you live, the things that you do. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So that's the foundation. So the house that we're building, whether we build a whole thing out of wood, hay, and straw, or whether it's all built with gold, silver, and precious stones, it's all built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. That tells you everybody's saved no matter what else happens. First Corinthians, then when we see this, the I here, when he, Paul says, I have laid the foundation, that's the Apostle Paul. The foundation is Jesus Christ, the Savior who's crucified for our sins. 1 Corinthians 2, 2, Paul said, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's his focal point of the gospel, the crucifixion of Christ. So when we go to talk about the day, in verse 12 he says, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. So there's six building components. Three of them are precious stones and can be destroyed only with great difficulty. The other three can be burned up quite quickly. The gold, silver, and precious stones can all be purified by fire fire rather than destroyed by fire. Verse 13 says, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it. So what day is that? That's the day we're talking about, the day of Christ. The day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. So what is revealed are the gold, silver, precious stones. Now, some people are going to sit there, and they're going to look at their hand, and they're going to say, well, at least there's something there. Others are going to have a big sack like their Santa Claus, and then there's another group that's going to have everything burned up because there were no gold, silver. There's nothing relative to rewardability. It will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test. Now, that's an important word, and we'll come back to it a little bit, but it's to, it will qualify. That's the word dokimazo. It means to evaluate something for approval, not to evaluate something for judgment or disapproval. It's a positive word. The fire will test each one's work of what kind it is. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hair, straw. And and so this is the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, as mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1.8. In that passage, he, uh, Paul writes, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. So they're clearly saved as rotten and immoral and arrogant and divisive as they were. Paul still has some things to say positively about them, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless. There's the same word that we have in Philippians, that we are to be spotless and blameless. 
shining lights as in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, so that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the judgment seat of Christ. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, it's purified by the fire, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. He won't have rewards. See, it's going to be like the prodigal son. He had an inheritance, but he squandered it. And so there was a loss. So there are going to be believers who had the potential of reward, but they will not have any. But they, he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. So that word saved there is the word we typically find for saved, which is sozo. And this is the idea here of eternal salvation. He's still going to go into heaven even though he has nothing rewardable. So one group has rewards. The other group has no rewards or loses rewards. And that's important to understand in all of these passages. When you come out of the other side of the evaluation, there are those that have rewards and those who don't have rewards. But they're all saved. They're all in the bride of Christ. They're all going to be in the kingdom. So they're all saved eternally from the penalty, power, and presence of sin. So that was the fifth point. The sixth point is to see this chart that I put together on salvation and rewards. So the left column is salvation. The right column is rewards, and I'll take them point by point. In salvation, it's for all mankind. Christ died for all. He paid the sin penalty for all. But rewards are available only to believers. Second line, salvation is only given to some unbelievers. Not all unbelievers are saved because they reject the free offer of salvation. Rewards are distributed only to some believers, those who are obedient In the third line, Christ does the work of salvation. We don't do anything to save ourselves. Christ did everything on the cross. When he was hanging there uh, just before he died, he said, it is finished, to telestai, a a verb form in the Greek that indicates it's over with, it's paid for, it's paid in full. There's nothing more to be added. So Christ does the work, but in the... In the right column, under rewards, the believer's works. He walks by the Spirit. The WBS is walking by the Spirit. It is the Spirit who performs the works through us. It's his, the fruit of the Spirit. But it's our volition whether or not we're, we will walk by the Spirit or not. Under salvation, it's permanent. It cannot be lost. We are held in the grip of the Lamb, and we are held in the grip of the Father. It's a double grip, and we can't get loose from either one of them, and both of them together preserve us. But rewards may be lost, according to 1 Corinthians 3. Under salvation, it's by faith in Christ. Nothing added by faith alone in Christ alone. 
We don't have our fingers crossed behind our back saying, I believe Christ died for my sins, but I've got some good works to back it up if that's not enough. Some people are sort of like that. And it may be lost under rewards. We can we can lose rewards. <clears throat> Sorry, I looked at the wrong line. By faith in Christ is salvation, walking by faith by the Holy Spirit. We walk by faith and not by sight. And that's the, our rewards. And then in the last line, salvation provides equal opportunity. And... Rewards are based on our use of that opportunity. It doesn't provide equal results. So now we come to a fun passage. We've all gone through this before, but I always try to come up with some new illustrations. This is Romans 8.17. We just went through this a couple of Sundays ago. Where Paul says, if children, then heirs. And then in the New King James, it has an M dash Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That's the phrase. See, it's punctuated, it's set off. You've got an M dash at the beginning and you have a, a, a comma at the end. If indeed we suffer with him that we may lose, uh, that we may also be glorified together. So what we see here is according to this punctuation, the phrase heirs of God, nothing after God, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ are are put together, offset by punctuation, as if they are the same thing. And that both of them then are qualified by the conditional clause if we suffer with him. So that many people will take this, that these are the same. But are they really? It's important where we put the commas. There were no commas in the Greek. There weren't semicolons. There weren't hyphens, there weren't any of these things. In fact, there weren't even spaces between the words. It's just like one long run-on list of letters in the alphabet. But if you're familiar with the language, I keep threatening to do this, where I'm going to take a verse and just run it all together and let you see what that looks like. And you, Because you're familiar with the language and you can read above a first grade level, you can pick out exactly what it says. And so it's not difficult if you're really familiar with the language. But then you, and punctuation would come because of the use of certain other words and with just grammatical structure. But we learn the importance of commas. For example, in the phrase, in the statement, we are going to learn how to cut and paste kids. The comment is commas people, commas. Here's another one. Caution. Slow kids on road with no shoulders. Dead end. This is why commas are important. Have to learn how to properly punctuate. And when we go through English translations, we'll see a lot of different ways in which the translators have punctuated to try to get across what they think is being said in the Greek. So this is from the uh, original King James, where you have uh, heirs of God with a comma after it, right here. So you have a comma after then heirs, and then heirs of God has another comma, and then joint heirs with Christ ends with the colon. Now this indicates an uncertainty, I think, 
And then because it has a colon there, the if clause is used to qualify both the heirs of God and joint heirs. And that's the common view, is that the if clause, if we suffer. Now, some people think that suffering means that you have to be drawn and quartered, you have to have uh, be, be put on... Um, you know, some sort of rack where you're stretched or you have to have thumb screws applied or you have to have your fingernails pulled out, all kinds of different things. No, Scripture just talks about suffering is facing any adversity because we live in the devil's world and standing firm with the Word of God. Romans 8.17 in the New American Standard, notice There's a comma after also, and then it's heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ as one thing linking them together. But they're both qualified by the condition. So you can't be an heir of God or fellow heir with Christ unless you suffer with him. Now I'm going to talk to you about why they think this. And it goes back to looking through a grid that is heavily influenced by Calvinism. That's how they they just read it that way. In uh, the um, World English Bible and the American Standard Version, it, they put the comma in like the new, like the King James did after God, joint heirs with Christ, and a colon there. So they just follow that same same tradition. And uh, the ESV, which is a update of the Revised Standard Version, in case you didn't know that. I just learned that recently. I didn't have any idea that I thought it was a newer translation, but it's just an update of the RSV. And if children then heirs, then you have an M dash, heirs of God, no comma, and fellow heirs with Christ, comma. My point here is just to show that every translation uses different punctuation to try to communicate something about what is being said. So we, if we look at it this way, this is like the, um, like the New King James, set apart with an M dash, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, where they're viewed as basically the same. It looks like there's no distinction. But the Greek actually uses a distinct grammatical device in order to help us understand what they're saying. But it's words that aren't necessarily translated. Here's the Greek text up here. You can't read that. But you have a men, that's M-E-N. Here's the English transliteration here, men dead. This is called a men de clause. And you will have the first part, heirs of God, but you have a men there. And then you have an and, uh, which is translated, joint heirs of Christ. So I've translated it down here. The way a mendec clause is translated is if on the one hand, such and such, then on the other hand. So it's talking about two different things. So it's accurately translated would be, now if we are children, we are also heirs. On the one hand, heirs of God. On the other hand, fellow heirs with Christ. And so Dan Wallace, who's just retiring from being a professor of Greek forever at Dallas Seminary since we graduated together, uh, in his excellent exegetical grammar, and he's got problems because he tends towards lordship. And he doesn't do much with this, but he translates it correctly. 
And so it's real, very clear when you translate this because of the Mende clause that this is uh, on the one hand this and on the other hand that. You've got two different things. So the grammar is clear as well as looking at the theology based on the if clause. 1 Corinthians 9.25, which we'll look at in a minute, does the same thing. Now, on the one hand, it's talking about those who are competing in a contest. Those who compete for the prize, the one who competes in the prize is temperate in all things. That means they're disciplined in their diet and other th- and exercise. Now, on the one hand, they do it. On the one hand, here's talking about those who are in the actual literal Olympic contest. So on the one hand, those who are doing the physical race, they do it to obtain a perishable crown. Crowns were made out of laurel leaves or oak leaves or some other sort of, of a plant leaf. But on the other hand, so it's talking about two different things. On the other hand, we, that is we as believers, are in the race for an imperishable crown. So it's talking about two different things. So that just helps you to understand that, that there's a grammatical device here that is overlooked in every translation just about. I'm going to say just about because I haven't looked at every one of them and I am not omniscient. Romans 8.17, therefore, should be translated like this. And if children, then on the one hand, heirs of God. So we're all heirs of God because we're children of God. That is true. We have, uh, we're going to have an imperishable body. We're going to have a resurrection body. We're not going to have disease. We're not going to die. We're going to have joy. We're going to have eternal life. All of these things. And on the other hand, comma, joint heirs with Christ, no punctuation, if indeed we suffer with him. <clears throat> so the idea there is that as we grow, we're going to encounter uh, difficulties, uh, James says in James 1, 2, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, various tests, various temptations. So if we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So there's two types of heirs. Heirs of God is all believers. Second, you have joint heirs with Christ for those who grow spiritually and suffer various degrees of adversity because of their faithfulness to Christ. Now, some problems come from a Calvinistic framework. Now, when I was in Tucson the last time, uh, Pastor Hentz had gotten an email from somebody who was questioning this. And so he was formulating his answer, and he's had a couple of people leave his church because he teaches this. And that's happened, I'm assuming that's happened to me probably, and I probably didn't know about it, because people, some people just really get bothered by this. They think everybody gets the same thing coming out of the judgment seat of Christ. But that's not what the text says. But that's what a Calvinistic theology says that is read into the text. So I want to go through this with you to show how that's consistent with a Calvinistic framework. And the Calvinistic framework is what produces a lordship salvation model instead of a free grace view. You have TULIP. You're all familiar with the TULIP acronym for Calvinism. You have a flower for Arminianism also. It's called a daisy. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. 
So we start with the T, total inability. This is strict Calvinism, total inability. That means no human being can do anything, can't even exercise positive volition to God. They are totally locked into uh, their, their corrupt sin. Only God can change them. So in total inability, they can't do anything. Second, you have unconditional election. So God is going to choose who will be saved. He's going to elect them to salvation. In some forms of Calvinism, you have what is called double predestination, where God chooses some for salvation. This is an eternity past before they ever live. God chooses some for salvation, and he condemns the others to eternity in the lake of fire. That came out of an early Middle Age theologian named Augustine. So you have unconditional election. So since they can't do anything to please God or anything that would encourage God to give them more information, God will choose them. He goes through and he selects these are going to be saved, these won't be saved. Then you have limited atonement because God has already determined the number and who will be saved, Jesus dies only for those who are going to be saved. And as part of this, what happens is they believe that that God will regenerate the elect before they exercise faith. So they are regenerated before they believe because they can't do anything. So they're totally unable and so God regenerates them so and gives them a special kind of faith, saving faith. How do you know if you have saving faith? You only know if you have saving faith by the kind of fruit that you see. So it encouraged people to be fruit inspectors. If you have the right kind of fruit, then you know because of the fruit that you're saved. We would say, no, we know we're saved because we believe the promise of God and we're trusting God's promise. So in looking at these three, the result is that you only a few are going to be saved, those who are chosen by God. Christ only died for those, and he is going to produce fruit in them. The first fruit is faith in the gospel after they are regenerated. This is done by a work of the Holy Spirit called irresistible grace, that that God is going to irresistibly draw them to the gospel. They can't fight it. It's like a tractor beam on Star Trek. You're locked in and you're pulled in and you can't wiggle free no matter what you want to do. And then the last is perseverance of the saints, that if you're a saint is someone who is elect. And if you are elect and you want to know it, you look at your life and you determine it on the basis of the fruit that you see. Now, this makes sense when you come to rewards that if God saves them, God gives them the faith, God saves them, God produces the fruit, then everybody's going to get the same end result rewards. It fits the Calvinistic model. But we don't believe that. We believe that we hear the gospel because God the Holy Spirit enables us to understand it, but we believe it is a part of our volitional responsibility. And when we trust in the gospel, believe the gospel because we are saved by grace 
through faith. So if I, you ask me, how do I get to the kitchen? You go through the doors. Do you go through the doors before you get to the kitchen or after you get to the kitchen? You go through the doors first. So if you're saved by grace through faith, then you got to have the faith before you get the salvation by grace. That comes first. And it's the gift of God. It's not faith. Faith is a feminine noun. We can't get gender confused when we're talking about grammar. Faith, faith is a feminine noun. Grace is a feminine noun. Salvation is a masculine noun. The relative pronoun translated that is a neuter. Now, in Greek grammar, just like you have in Latin or in Spanish or any number of other inflected languages, if the demonstrative pronoun, uh, uh, no if, the demonstrative pronoun has to agree with the gender of the noun to which it refers. But you've got three nouns. In Greek, if you have a multiple subject reference for a for a uh, demonstrative pronoun, and they are of different genders, then it defaults to a neuter gender in the demonstrative pronoun. So when it says that, that that refers not to faith, not to grace, not to salvation, it refers to all three. It refers to that by grace through faith salvation, the whole phrase. That for by, for gr- by grace through faith salvation is not of ourselves. It, the by grace through faith salvation, is a gift of God. It's a gift of God that he gives us the opportunity to exercise our volition and to believe or disbelieve the gospel. Once we believe, we grow spiritually. We have volitional responsibility again to decide whether we will grow or whether we won't grow. And if we grow and we're faithful, we're going to fail, we're going to succeed, we can't figure out which is which, then we will be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ and God will graciously reward us on the basis of our faithfulness. Now, the problem with this is you get certain books in the New Testament like 1 John. 1 John, every scholar believes that it, one of two positions on 1 John. Either 1 John was written to show a contrast between believers and unbelievers, and that is what's consistent with Reformed theology. That is how almost every Reformed person, I'm not going to say every because I'm not omniscient and I don't know what everyone says. There's always those who are inconsistent with their theological position. So, But, but that's the Reformed position, is that 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 this is a contrast between believer and unbeliever. And so when you get to the phrase talking about overcomer, the overcomer refers to the believer, so it refers to every believer. But the contrary view of 1 John is that it's contrasting the carnal believer with the spiritual believer, the believer who's walking in the light the believer who is confessing sin, the, believing, the believer who is loving his brother and not hating his brother, and on and on. And so the one who is in the column of the right things, he's an overcomer. 
one is not. But there are there are many people who are free grace who say, no, everybody's an overcomer. Well, they're taking an interpretation of overcomer that is inconsistent with how they understand the totality of the book of the epistle of First John. So that's that's just just an important. I don't think I've ever brought that out before, but that's an important thing to understand. So eighth, we'll go on to key passages. Colossians three twenty three and 24, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord. So that's part of the criteria at the judgment seat of Christ. Did you do it as unto the Lord, walking by the Spirit, serving the Lord, or not? Do it as unto the Lord and not to men. And it, it, over the course of time in Christianity, this was an understanding that it didn't matter. Everybody had a calling, and it didn't matter if your calling was to be a ditch digger, a taxi driver, a banker, a politician, a teacher, or whatever it was, you did it as unto the Lord. And all, all, um, all jobs, all careers were all honorable because you were serving the Lord. You serve the Lord because you know that from the, from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. So we do it heartily as to the Lord, not to men, because we know that from the Lord we will receive the reward of the inheritance. For what? For doing it heartily as under the Lord. It's a reward for what we do. Salvation is a, is a gift because of what Christ did. For, and then it concludes, for you serve the Lord Christ. So we learn from this that salvation is free. It's unearned and it's undeserved. It's a free gift that we accept or reject. Rewards are based on doing. So salvation is free. Rewards are earned. Now we come to the next passage that we can be disqualified. And in disqualification, that's the opposite of approval. So this is from 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25. Paul uses the metaphor of an Olympic contest, a race, in order to communicate uh, the distinction between those who are rewarded and get a crown and those who don't. Now you have to remember here that everybody who goes into the race is a believer, it's not a race to see who's going to get to heaven and who won't. It's a race to see how believers will do in this life. So the race is a metaphor for how we do in this life. Every believer is going to be in this race. No one enters a race unless they're a Christian. Now the analogy was to the Olympic Games because in Corinth they were between uh, uh, near two places where they had Olympic Games in the ancient world. Just north of Corinth, Corinth is to the south of Achaia, which is where Athens was. It's the main body, main mainland, and it's um, attached to the mainland. There's on, they're on the Peloponnesian Peninsula, and they're attached to the mainland by just a narrow isthmus called the Isthmus of Corinth. So they had the Isthmian Games. Just try to say that real fast five or six times. They had the Isthmian Games. Now, just not, not an hour's drive from there, you have where they had the Oracle of Delphi. And at Delphi, you had uh, the Delphi Games. And here's the uh, remains of the stadium at Delphi. Now, I don't know how well you can see it from where you're sitting, 
But where I have it circled, you can tell that there's a discoloration here. That's where the judges sat. That's the bema. We have a close-up right here. See, it's an elevated seat, a platform. It's something different. And so they would line up for the races, and then they would then they would uh, run. So what Paul says is everyone, meaning every believer who competes in the games, exercises self-control in all things. Now here he's talking about the literal games. So if you're going to run in a game, you're going to exercise self-control. Self-control, by the way, is a fruit of the Spirit. So he says, everyone who competes in the games, the physical Olympic games, exercises self-control in all things. They would have a rigid diet. They would have to get up a certain time. They would go to bed a certain time. They would have to exercise a certain time. They were watched carefully. They could not leave. They had no vacation for six months. They are under a, basically a drill sergeant coach to prepare them for the Olympic games. They, meaning the physical athletes, uh, they do it to receive a perishable, perishable wreath. And I used this a minute ago to show there's a Mendec construction here. On the one hand, they, the physical athletes, do it to receive a perishable wreath. And on the other hand, we do it for an imperishable wreath. See, their perishable wreath was made out of oak leaves or laurel leaves or something that you know, would wither and be gone in just a, just a few days. So Paul concludes, therefore, I run in this manner, not with uncertainty. He's certain. He knows. I know what I'm doing. i got to run the race. I have the Word of God to guide me. I, I fight not like one who's just randomly swinging his fists in the air. And then he says, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Now, that doesn't mean he would lose salvation. He's talking about he would be disqualified from what? He wouldn't get the prize. He wouldn't get the crown at the end. He would still run the race. He would still be a competitor. He still saved, but he wouldn't get the prize. So again, you have those that get the prize, the reward, and those that don't. So, And the word here is adakimas. The A is your negative prefix. Remember I talked about in the other, uh, in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, approval is dakimazo. So it's, um, you were tested for approval. And so if you're adakimas, adakimas, you're unqualified. So we could translate it this way, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be unqualified or disqualified. In 1 Corinthians 3.13, you have the uh, positive statement that what we do will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test or qualify each one's work, qualify it for rewards or lack of rewards. So in summary, what we see is every believer is competing in the games. We're not competing against one another, but against the standard of righteousness. Living by the Holy Spirit, none will be perfect, but some will be disqualified. Disqualification is not a loss of salvation, but a loss of the prize, the imperishable crown. So the Bible talks about crowns. Now, this, again, is important to understand. 
in 1 Peter 5, 4, when the chief shepherd appears. Now, when's he going to appear? Second coming? Rapture. Because he's got, it's talking about the evaluation judgment. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Now, the word for crown here is the word Stephanos. Now, that means a crown that you earn. Uh, a, a diademos, which is in the next point, the diademos is a royal crown. So a Stephanos is the victor's crown, a crown given as an award for successful achievement, for victory in the Olympic Games, for bravery in combat, or a place of honor at a feast. The Stephanos is given for achievement or merit. This is the term used to describe the crown of thorns on Jesus' head. I think that's important because that means that he, they're not recognizing he's a king. If it had been a diademos of thorns, that would have indicated something else, but it's Stephanos. They're poking fun at him. Diademos is the royal crown, a crown used for a king, but it's never used for believers' rewards in the New Testament. So Christ's ruling crown was called a diadema. In Revelation 19, he comes and on his head were many crowns, diadems. Crown him with many crowns. See, in that hymn, somebody once got upset with me and left the church because they, they said, he's not crowned yet. Well, if you can read poetry, it's talking about what will happen at the second coming. It's not talking about what has happened now. We will crown him with many crowns, or he will be crowned with many crowns in the future. So Stephanos is used for the athletic rewards in 1 Corinthians 9.25. They do it for a perishable Stephanos, but we do it for an imperishable Stephanos. Fourth, it's used for the crowns of the 24 elders around the throne. That tells us, on the basis of a lot of other evidence as well, that those 24 represent church-age believers because they are already rewarded. They're raptured and rewarded already. They have Stephanos crowns. And um, they are going to cast them before the, before the Lord, before the lion who comes forth from, from the tribe of Judah. And that is, that, that is so culturally nuanced because in the ancient world, if you had subordinate rulers to the king, they were showing their loyalty to the king by laying their crowns before them. They're not giving them up. They're not turning them back. They are, it's a visual act showing their loyalty to the king who gave them those, uh, those crowns. So in Revelation 4.4, 4, they had crowns of gold on their heads, the Stephanos. And the 24 elders had to fall down and they cast their crowns before the throne. So it's a pure act of loyalty for, it's not giving up those rewards, it's showing fealty to the Lord. The Stephanos is used for specific rewards. In Second Timothy four eight, Paul says, "Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. It's a Stephanos crown, which the Lord, the righteous Judge, will give to me on that day. What day is that? 
That's the day of Christ. That's the judgment seat. James 1.12, blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved. There's that word dokimazo again. When he has been qualified, he will receive the crown of life. That's a different reward, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So the crown of righteousness is goes to those who have loved his appearing, who are looking forward to the return of Christ at the rapture. And the crown of life is to those who love him, who grow and mature in their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what I just mentioned this. The four crowns in the New Testament are crown of righteousness for those who love his appearing. Uh, the crown of life mentioned in Revelation 2.10 and in James 1.12 uh, is for those who love him, who have grown to mature and love him. You know, not love him like a baby loves him, loves him with a mature love. There's the mention in First Peter 5, 4 of the crown of glory, the glorious crown. Uh, this is to pastors who faithfully study and communicate the word of God to their congregation. The issue is faithful service. You know, a lot of times in my third church that I pastored, I had four elders who were all um, really go-getters, type A personality. They were entrepreneurs. They got every morning and they made their do list, and at the end of the day they had to have checked off everything in that do list. And they kept wanting me, every year we'd have this argument. We want you to lay out the goals that you're going to accomplish this year. And I would come back and I'd say, I'm going to faithfully teach the Word. I'm going to faithfully study. I'm going, and they would say, no, 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 we've we got to grow the congregation. I said, no, I can't control that. I can lead a horse to water, but I can't make him drink. There's all kinds of people out there who are trying all kinds of gimmicks to grow a big church. I was ordained by Harry Leaf, who was a pastor at the time of Tombaugh Bible Church. Harry and I used to have lunch together a lot and play racquetball together. And he often reminded me, he said, Robbie, you've got to recognize, and, and Harry had a very successful business career before he went to seminary. Harry said, anybody with a good education and a good mind and a lot of discipline can build a big organization. But that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit had anything to do with it. And there are a lot of pastors who, they, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.4, 4, that his responsibility is just to be a faithful steward. And that's all that a pastor can be qualified to do is be faithful. And that's what he should be evaluated on. Is he faithfully using, developing his gifts and fulfilling the responsibilities given to him in the Scripture? And then there's the winner's crown for believers who do not give up, but they attain spiritual maturity. They are the ones who run the race. 1 Corinthians nine twenty four to 27. So in the last point, when is the day of Christ? We're in the church age. The church age ends with the rapture of the church, and then immediately following that, the Bema Seat of Christ, which takes place in heaven, which is timeless. People, I've heard people say, how can he, everybody get rewarded in seven years? I said, in seven seconds of our time, Christ is going to reward everyone. 
he's not bound by time. The church age or the rapture is followed eventually by the tribulation. The tribulation, uh, there will be the second coming of Christ at the end of the millennial kingdom. There's the second resurrection of the unsaved and then the great white throne judgment. So the timing of the Bema is here. The great white throne is here, and it is only for unbelievers. So as we look at the timeline, after the church age, there's the rapture and the Bema seat of Christ. Then the tribulation. Then there's the second coming. So you have the first resurrection involves Christ, on that first resurrection Sunday, then the rapture of the church age believers, then the two witnesses halfway through the tribulation, and then the Old Testament and tribulation saints at the end of the tribulation. Christ returns, and there will be the judgment of the sheep and the goat separation, Matthew 25. The Antichrist is judged, and then the false prophet, and they are thrown into the lake of fire. The judgment, sheep and goat judgment, involves surviving Gentiles and surviving Jews, Old Testament saints as well as tribulation saints. So you see there's eight, these are seven of the eight different judgments. Then you have the millennial kingdom. And then the second generation, uh, the second resurrection, rather, followed by the great white throne for the unsaved dead. And then Satan is sent to the lake of fire. Okay? Conclusions. Number one, every Christian builds on the foundation of their salvation. Faith in Jesus Christ as the promised and prophesied Messiah who, like the Passover lamb, died as a sacrifice to take away the sin of the world. That's our foundation. Second, we build on it with moral works. The Pharisees were extremely moral, but morality doesn't count for anything. It has to do with walking by the Spirit. Morality will be wood, hay, and straw, but what is produced by the Holy Spirit is gold, silver, and precious stones. Third, in this life we cannot determine which is which. You can't get up in the morning and say, okay, I did a little bit of this yesterday, a little bit of that. Maybe you're close, but we don't have a clue. Our life's, Fourth, our life's work will be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ where all will be clear. Fifth, the judgment seat of Christ is not designed to expose sin. It's not about how we failed. Christ paid the penalty for sin. That's over and done with. It's about how we succeed. And so it exposes that which has eternal value. Six, the metaphor of burning isn't, isn't divine punishment. It is just the picture of destroying that which only had temporal value so that it can reveal that which has eternal value. Seventh, rewards are on the basis of what is eternal. And eighth, some will have no valuable works yet they will be saved yet as through fire. So the conclusion is there are two types of Christians who enter into heaven, those with rewards and those with no rewards. So that concludes. That's what happens at the day of Christ. That puts it all into perspective. And it gives us a reason to live, a motivation that we are here to serve the Lord 
and that eventually God is the judge of all things. Abraham said, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Only God has all the information, and he will make the right decision. Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we could study these things and uh, be challenged, encouraged to live today in light of eternity. Not living today just, just for its own pleasure, but living today to serve you, to grow spiritually, to pursue that which has eternal value. And Father, we pray that we might be challenged every day to do that. We will fail many, many times. But there's gracious forgiveness and cleansing and recovery, and we keep pressing on, standing firm. Pray that God the Holy Spirit will strengthen us in the inner man, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.